today we are going to be starting uh, a, a new series today um, called the book of James. We're going to be studying the book of James. And uh, this is uh, going to be a fun week. This is, uh, sorry, it's going to be a, a fun uh, study and a fun month for us to be able to study the book of James. When I was younger, there was a gentleman that used to work for my father. His name was Ted Collington. And he really had quite an influence on me. He, he used to run one of my father's churches um, in Scotland. And the way he preached was he didn't just preach topically. Churches tend to teach topically. They pick a topic and then they'll find scriptures that go with that topic. We tend to do that as well. But he used to teach in such a way that he would just pick a book and then open it up and only study that one book. And it changed the way that I looked at studying the scriptures as well. And so we've decided let's do this as well. It may be a little bit more, more old-fashioned to do things that way, but for the next five weeks, we're going to take one chapter a week reading from the book of James. And I've asked uh, Dave to actually read us the first chapter of the book of James to receive what God has to say to us directly from his word. Are you ready, Dave? Yes, sir. Let's do this. <clears throat> James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Believers in hum humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wind, a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blo its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even though they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, 
which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and then, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in all that they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from becoming polluted by the world. All God's people said, amen. Thanks to God for his word. This is quite a long chapter here. Now, when you're reading uh, any uh, book in the Bible, you have to understand that most of them were letters and none of them had chapters or verses attached to them at all originally. But there are five chapters in the book of James. And the first chapter really is a summation of the rest of all the chapters in the book of James. And the first thing I want to do is I want to quickly look at who this guy James was. Because there were five Jameses in the book of, in, in the whole of the Bible, but this guy was the, 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 uh, the, the half-brother of Jesus. And the half-brother of Jesus, he was one of a few brothers and one of several sisters that Jesus had as well. They had the same mother through Mary. Now, James really didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He did not believe that he was God himself. I mean, who does believe that their brother is God? And in fact, one of the ways that you can tell when someone is insane or whether they're crazy is when they, when they start to claim that they are God themselves, right? Has any of your siblings ever claimed that they were God themselves? And you're like, right, okay, master, let me serve you from now on. In fact, he went with his brothers and his mother over to where Jesus was in this crowd of people and sharing the word of God, and they were trying to push through, and they couldn't get through, and, and, and they were trying to get him, take him home. In fact, they were trying to to institutionalize him because they thought he had lost his freaking mind. And so they said, can you get a hold of him? Tell him we're looking for him. And they said, hey, master, your brother, your mother and your brothers are here and they've come to get you. And they said, he said, at that point, who are my mother and brothers but those that do the will of the Lord? I can only imagine that totally blessed James, right? And so he wasn't really, uh, really sold into the whole thing that Jesus, his brother, was God himself. But he turned around He completely changed to become an ardent supporter and follower of Jesus Christ. Do you know how he did that? He did it by witnessing his brother being brutally murdered on a cross. And when he saw him murdered on a cross, he was so broken by that that it says that he actually stopped eating for days because he had just lost his brother, even though he didn't agree that he was the son of God until... One day, Jesus turned up, walked in the room and said, I told you it was the Son of God because he was a risen Christ. I mean, you can only imagine when you see your brother who has just been brutally murdered on a cross and you can see that he is the risen Christ and you can see him in his glory. Can you imagine how much joy he must have felt, how humbled he must have felt? In fact, it says he he refers to himself as the bond slave of Jesus because he always said, He always pointed towards the fact that he didn't believe ardently in Christ and he was blind to it, but now that he's turned towards him, he was truly a born servant of him. 
He became such a passionate follower of his brother, Jesus Christ, that he became the leader of the first church in Jerusalem. He was known as James the Just. He was named, known as James the Wise. In fact, he also had another name, which was James the Little, which in Scotland means Wee Jamesy. Right, so that was his name, it was his nickname was Wee James. And Wee James was a, quite a short guy and he'd walk around and he had such a boldness for Jesus. In fact, there was a stage when uh, they were having a switchover of the Roman governor in the city and the Jewish leaders hated him. And there was a switchover between the two leaders. There was a two-month gap in between them when the Jewish leaders were able to take control and they hated him so much that they finally took him. They dragged him up to the top of a temple and they threw him off the roof of the temple, which is 60 foot tall. Now, I've fallen off of a roof from 20 foot and I actually lived. I can't imagine what it'd be like to be thrown off of a 60 foot drop, which is three times the height of this. And he lived. And so they took stones and they started to stone him to death. But even as he was being stoned to death, they could hear him praying for those that were killing him, asking, Father, don't hold this against him. Please don't hold this stoning against him as they were breaking his bones and smashing his body in. And finally, someone took sympathy on him and took him a club, took a club and just clubbed his head in and finally killed him. And the news of his death went around from church to church to church because he was such a beloved apostle of Jesus Christ. But just before he wrote this letter, just before he died, he wrote this letter to the churches. Which churches? Well, it says the churches that are in the diaspora around the world, which is the churches that had, had gone from, from Jerusalem to other places. In fact, what happened is people through the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire brought us one language. It brought us one road system. It brought us one security system. It brought us one currency system. And so people were able to go around the world and go to other places to find the riches. And so these, these Jewish people had gone to other places and they had, they, had, they had started to follow Christ and form their own churches, but he noticed there were issues within the church that he wanted to write to them about. And this is why he wrote his letter. Now, personally, I don't particularly like the way that James is written because James is written in such a way that we call a cyclical type of form. That means he goes round a wheel. He goes round and round in circles. He talks about this subject, then that subject, then this subject, then that subject, and they don't feel like they're all connected together, but then he always ends up at a particular destination, which is why when we were just reading chapter one there, he had so many different things that he was talking about. In fact, I think Pastor Marcus uh, thinks in that way. They call that musing out loud. They talk, they talk about they're taking their thoughts inside and they're musing out loud. It's a very Middle Eastern way of thinking. Now, I'm more of, a, I'm more of a, a linear type of thinker of step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. And we all learn in different ways. And so I find this sometimes frustrating to read people like James. And I'm like, I don't know what his point is. I don't know what he's getting to. But at the end of the day, once you read it, you should be able to receive the spirit of what he is bringing. It's very practical information that he is giving. In fact, the advice that he is giving, advice usually falls into two different categories. Advice typically forms into two ways, which is either it's a rebuke type of advice or it's a solution type of advice. <clears throat> a rebuke type of advice is to tell you what you've done wrong, and a solution type of advice is here's the way to fix problems that you may have in your life. In fact, he combines both of them. This is very typical in churches. In fact, uh, churches can often become very legalistic where they are telling you what you can't do. Thou shalt not do this. You shall not do this. And, and, and so maybe some of you have grown up in churches where you were given very strict rules and regulations of what you couldn't do. That's called legalism. 
Or maybe you've come from a church which swings to the other side of the pendulum, which is very license-free. It's very, it's, you have a license to be able to do as you wish because you're now free in Christ. Legalism says you are saved by good deeds, but license says you are saved without good deeds. You don't have to, you don't have to do good deeds in order to be saved, and so you're free to do whatever you want. In fact, if you just sin, don't worry about it because, you know, all you need to do is just say sorry and it's no big deal. Uh, that's the license you have. You'll never lose your salvation. But what James does is he combines both of them together and he talks about the liberty that we have in Christ. You're not saved by good deeds and you're not saved without good deeds, but you are saved for good deeds. You're saved to do something in your life. You're saved to make a difference in the world. Now, there are four main topics that I want to dig into uh, uh, today, four different things that James talks about. He talks about, and I've made them all begin with W because it's simply just the easiest way to try and remember things, right? He talks about wealth, then he talks about words, then he talks about the world, and then he talks about wisdom. Now, as we just actually read the scripture, chapter one, everything of all those topics were literally in chapter one, which is why there was so much stuff going on. But in the weeks coming, we'll see this being laid out from week to week because there's four more chapters uh, uh, hereafter. Okay, so let's look at the first one, wealth. Verses nine to 11. Verse nine says this, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. Now, <clears throat> to be honest, I actually think he sounds very political here. This is the type of thing that I would expect to hear from a politician of the poor. These are the ones who are the great amongst us. But the rich, the 1%, they're the cursed ones because they keep stealing all the money. And they're the ones we should rise up against and we should tax them even more. As if it seems like a very political thing. But I don't really think that's what he's doing here. In fact, he's talking about how the, re how the rich are actually treating the poor that were amongst them. But let me, let me ask you a quick question here. Let me do a, po a poll. How many of you, by a show of hands, think that you are rich? How many of you think you're rich? How many of you? Okay, so I've got, come on, uh, about maybe 15%, maybe 20 a stretch, okay? So about 15 or 20% um, of you think you're rich. Hold on a second. I've got a dry throat going on here. Okay, so here's my next question. It's not a trick question. I'm not going to ask you if, uh, how many of you think you're poor, right? Because some of you, are, uh, you have that type of mindset where you're like, oh, I don't want to say I'm poor because if I say I'm poor, I might actually become poor. And I don't want to confess that, right? Okay, so I'm not going to say, how many of you don't think you're rich? How many of you don't think you're rich? Okay, one, two, three, four. Okay, so maybe about 5%. 5%, oh, one, one was added on there, so we'll make it 6%, okay? So maybe 6% there uh, was added on. So 6% of you actually don't think that you're actually rich, but here's an interesting statistic by the world standards. By the world standards today, 99% of you are actually very wealthy because the half, of the, the half of the people in the world that are the wealthiest people in the world own a minimum of three, just over $3,000 in assets. Now, if you count up your car, your houses, your smartphone, your tablet, your subscriptions to cable TV, to Netflix, to your watch, to all this stuff you own, you probably discover 
that you actually own more than $3,000 in assets. Now, you might be thinking, sitting there going, yeah, but my kids are the ones that are burning it up and they're using it all, okay, so I'm not that rich, right? They're just breaking all my stuff. But you are still part of the richest people in the world. The other half of the population in the world, and there's over 8 billion people in the world now, the other half live on less than $2.50 a day. And I'm going to guess that most of you live off of more than two and a half dollars a day, right? So we are the rich. So is, is, is he talking to us? I would say yes. If there's one group of people that he is writing to, it's got to be us because by comparison of the world's standards, we're actually very rich. Now, there's two points that I think he's saying here. I don't actually think he's trying to come down on the rich. I think he's trying to come down on the behaviors and the habits, and he's really challenging us on the habits that we tend to form once we become wealthy. And there's two points that I think he's making here. The first one is this, that wealth has this ability to insulate you from other people. Let me ask you another weird question, right? How many of you have ever gone and caught a chicken, you killed the chicken, you plucked the chicken, you, you, you took a chicken, you took the gizzards out and all that stuff, and then you stuffed it in an oven, you cooked it, and then you ate it yourself? How many of you have done the whole process yourself? One, two, three, four, four. We had four. We had so many more in the first service. Weird people in the first service, okay? So only four people... Of, uh, in this service have actually done that. Okay, of all you four people, how many of you generally do it that way? Okay, none of us do it that way. So most of us like to get down to Walmart, get to the freezer section, get us our biggest chicken we can. It's frozen. It's all packaged nicely for us. And it's nice and it's nice underneath the ties and it's perfect and it's clean and it's tidy. And I take it home. I can't imagine having to take a chicken and kill it myself. And and it's flapping around and I have to go pick it up myself. I'm like, i got to eat this thing. i got to eat this thing. Because I can pluck it and the feathers are going everywhere. And then I try and put it in the oven and go, I still have to eat that thing. It's not the type of thing we want to do, right? What I do is I will use my money to go buy that stupid chicken that's already been pre-plucked and pre-killed and pre-unflapped, right? I want to I I buy the stuff because it's, uh, it's a much more simple way for me to do things. You see, wealth has the ability to insulate us from things that we don't want to do, to insulate us from things that we don't want to experience. In fact, I have an opinion about this, and I realize maybe it's just an opinion, but I think it's entirely right, okay? So my opinion is I believe we use our tax system in the exact same way. You see, we use our taxes to insulate ourselves from our neighbors. So if my neighbor's house is on, the fi- on fire, I don't have to get a bucket of water and go over there and put it out. I just call up the fire de- department, right? I just have to follow, call, call the fire department and they put it out. If I'm having problems with my neighbors next door and they're really annoying me and their loud- music is too loud or something, I just call up the police. I don't have to go over and I don't have to try and negotiate with them and please turn your music down. If I have problems with the poor people that are on the streets that are hungry and they're starving or they don't have any clothes, don't worry about it. We have services that will look after it that my taxes pay for. Now, whether you're for taxes or against taxes, we live in a culture where we are able to insulate ourselves from the broader problems that might exist if we didn't have money and services to look after those people. See, I was in India a few years ago, and my wife and I were there. 
and the amount of poor people that are on the streets who don't have services to look after them. They don't have social services. They don't have uh, uh, um, uh, special money that comes to them from the government to help them to be able to survive. In fact, we were in a restaurant um, in, in the, uh, the, the hotel, and as we were sitting in the restaurant at the table, we were actually by one of the glass windows that looked out onto the street. And I'll never remember these little children just come up to the, the window, and they would just tap on the window, and they would point towards their lips and their mouth, and they just do this, and your heart just sinks because you want to take this food and give it to them. And that's what we wanted to do. And of course, they tell you, do not do that, because if you do that, then hundreds and thousands of poor people will come, and they will ask us for all the food, and we will just get mobbed. And if we get mobbed, we could actually be killed. So don't do that. And of course, you sit in this restaurant and going, I'm not hungry. Forget it. I had a piece of glass between me and that person outside. And yet God loves that person as much as he loves my person, but my wealth has insulated my, uh, myself from having to be a part of their life. The second thing that it can do is that wealth can aggrandize you above other, be, uh, other people, can make you think that you're actually greater than you really are. You see, when you're having a problem in your life, you don't actually have to depend on your neighbor or your family to ask for help because you have the money to fix it yourself. But those of you who have maybe been in a position where you've lost a job or you've gotten sick and you can't pay for your bills, you're now put into that place of having to be humbled into a different position to literally ask your friends or to ask your neighbors or to ask your, your family, please, can you help me? I don't have any food. I can't pay for my bills. I can't fix. I can't mow my grass. And you're, you're having to apologize in a sense of having to be a burden upon them. But God is saying to you, that's the position that you're blessed in. That's the position that you should consider that you're great in because the greatest amongst you are the ones who not only serve other people but are willing to be served by other people because the kingdom of God is about relationship. The kingdom of God is about being connected to one another. When you need people, you tend to be more humble. And what James is talking about here is he is saying, once you become wealthy, you become disconnected to other people and you think you're all good until you lose your wealth and you're like a flower that wilts in the sun and finally find out you weren't as great as you thought you were. You weren't as safe as you thought you were in the first place. The point is this. We can't insulate ourselves. We have got to stay connected to other people. In fact, we've got a, a business conference coming up next month, and it's called Greater Than Conference. And we've done it for quite a few years, and one of the things that I've really started to notice that many of us actually think, well, it's about business, or it's about just about making money. No, it's not. It's something more than that. It's about success and significance. You see, it's easy to make money. It's easy to be successful in life, but it's hard to become significant in life. And what we're asking ourselves the question of in this church is, how do we take our business, how do we take our wealth, and how do we become significant in life and combine those two things together? That's what James is talking about when he's talking about wealth. Number two, number two is words. In verse 19 to verse 26, he, I'm, I'm picking just a couple of things here. It says, everybody should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. And those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Now, I want to show you the organ that causes me most sin in my life. You ready? I'm ready to show you the organ that causes me the most problems in my life. 
Now, if you're listening to the podcast, I did stick out my tongue, just so to be clear on that. <laughs> my tongue is the thing that causes me problems. I know it. I've hurt people with it. I've said things I shouldn't say. I've said my opinion, and I've hurt people. But the problem is, with many of the words that we say, is that they're more born out of emotion than they are logic. We think they're logic, and we go, oh, but I'm just saying, that's all, I'm just saying. I'm just saying what's true. I'm just saying what's true, but you're not. You're actually saying an emotion that doesn't actually do anything to help the other person. I think sometimes Facebook and Twitter, and even, even though they can be very good tools in our lives, they've actually made us publishers of our opinion. And now we're more ready and willing to just publish everything that we think and spread it out to the world as far as we can. The problem with that is it's a little bit like a pillow full of feathers and that when you take these feathers and you shake them out into the world, they go out and they float around. But if you try to go take those feathers back and put them back in the pillowcase, you'll find it's very difficult to do. Words are like feathers and they can be carried on the wind and go to places you would never imagine and be planted in lands you would never imagine to have. My father was actually dying of cancer about 15 years ago. There was something that I noticed that happened to him that I was really shocked by and I was really, I was really kind of um, surprised by. He would start saying things that he felt and it always shocked me because I'd never heard my father talk that way before. He was a man of God, he was a pastor, he planted many churches, he was very well respected, but he would start saying things that he actually felt. And I realized this one thing, he lost his filters. And you see, I think that oftentimes we don't take control of the filters. Just because you feel it doesn't mean you should say it. Just because you, say it, you see it doesn't mean you should say it either. Just because you think it's true doesn't mean it's going to help anybody else. And I started thinking about it, and I started realizing what's going to happen when I get old and I lose my filters? What's going to come out of me? I don't want to start just saying whatever my emotions are. And then I got encouragement from the Word of God, and I realized this is why God is trying to change us from the inside to the outside. Because every day, one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess They'll confess that Christ is Lord, but they'll also confess what is in their heart. And I want to be able to confess that God has changed me from the inside to the outside. The point is this, that actions speak louder than words, so get about your business. Number three, number three, the world. James says this in chapter one, verses two to four, and verses 13 to 15, and verse 27, he says this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, wherever, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now, when he's talking about the world, he's talking about assimilation. He's talking about the problem where the world is starting to affect the way that Christians are, 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 are two ways. Two ways that we're, we're, we're affected in when pressure comes upon us. It's usually to do with our language and our behavior. Now, I always find this funny when, you know, when I'm around someone new or I'm around a group of people who are new, and maybe I'm sitting beside them on a plane or I'm on the golf course or I'm in a business meeting or at some neighbors and stuff, and you're just like chatting with them, and you're talking about life, and, <laughs> and they go, hey, Pete, what do you do for a living, right? And I'm like, oh, crap. 
Because once they find out I'm a pastor, they're going to change the way they react, right? And I'm going to feel like they're trying to act differently. And I don't want them to act differently. I want them to be who they are. I don't want them to feel like I'm the one who's got to judge them or somehow I'm going to, you know, give a good word. Hey, hey, Pete, well, this guy, he's a good guy. I know he talks really bad, but let him in heaven, right? And I can't get anyone into heaven, right? But people go, I'm sorry. That we, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you're a pastor. I'm sorry for the way I talked around you. Listen, I'm glad that maybe you, I'm glad that you want to change your behavior and change the way you talk, but that should be something that comes from the inside, not from the outside. It's not because of what people think of you that you should change your language. It's because you have a desire to please God that you change your language and behavior. That's why I love the Lovely Project in this church. That's why I love the way that the Lovely Project acts and how they go into schools and they actually mentor young girls of how to believe in themselves, to not be affected by what other people are listening to, them, the music that they're listening to, the movies that they're, listening, they're watching that they shouldn't be watching, the language that they're using, the sexualized language that they're using, that they should never be having to, to talk about or think about at 10 years old. No, we want to give them a standard and say, you're better than that. God has more for you in your life and you don't have to be pressured by the world that is around you. And James talks about the two types of pressures that come upon us, the two types of pressures. The first one is the pressure that comes from the outside and he calls them trials. That's tests. They come from the outside. And, but God says this, trials are for your success. Even though you think they're there to pull you down, they're not. They're for your success because through the power of chosen joy, you can have the ability to last and become strong and not be affected when other trials come against you in the future. And he talks about this joy and he said, listen, this joy is like the superhuman strength that, that is even greater than Batman or Superman and you'll be able to overcome the world because you've chosen to have joy. You see, joy comes from your mind, not from your heart. Happiness is something that is dependent on the situation you're in, the circumstances that a person has to be a certain way or a situation has to be a certain way and now I am happy and he's like, put that aside. I get you're going through difficult times and I feel your pain but you've got to find a way through it and the way you'll do it is by using the supernatural power of joy. Be joyful. Say thank you Lord. Sing a song. Choose to overcome your circumstances with joy on your lips and in your heart. Don't start to respond through bitterness and through anger. One of the things that Dr. Crystal uh, often said that her mother used to say is she would say, well, how do you want to look at the end of this trial? Because you see, the fact is people are watching what you're going through. They're listening to what you're saying. They're wondering if you're being crushed under it, if you're being a victim, if you're blaming other people, if you're being, uh, if you're being bitter, if you're being uh, manipulative, if you're complaining about your situation, or are they hearing you saying, I know what's happening to me, but my father is way greater than the situation I'm going through. He is way better than all the crap that I'm going through in my life, and my father's a good father, and if he knows I can survive, by this test, then he's a good father and he'll give me the strength to overcome. Can I hear an amen in the house of the Lord? But the second pressure he talks about is the pressure of temptation that comes from the inside. And he goes, listen, don't start blaming God for temptation. That's the desire that is within you. Temptation is there to try and make you stumble and fall. Listen, Jesus is not asking you to go through something he didn't go through himself. He went into the desert and was tempted by the devil himself. 
The way that temptation works is a little bit like a fisherman. He takes a fishing rod and he puts something on the end of his hook. And I know some of you are fishermen. And you put something on the end of the hook. What's it called? It's called the bait. And you take a specific bait for a specific fish. You see, you'll never be tempted with something that you're not hungry for. You'll always be tempted by something that is already in your heart and you have a deep desire for it. You might know it's wrong, but it's still a part of your heart. And you have to make a decision to say, no! Don't walk away from it. Run away from it, he says. Run for your life. If you have a problem with alcohol, stop going to the store that has a liquor part in the section of it. Stop going to bars for lunch. If you have a problem with gambling, don't go to Las Vegas for a vacation. If you have a problem with looking at women in the wrong way, don't go to the beach. They don't have most of their clothes on. No point in blaming them for it and saying, God, it's my trial. It's so difficult to see all these naked women in my life. I just don't know how to suffer with this, Jesus. Can you take this trial away from me? And he's like, get you out of the situation, not the situation out of you. Hello? You have to make a decision. Temptation is there for your failure. It comes from the inside to the outside. You have a decision to make. Are you going to walk in it? Or are you going to walk away? Are you going to run away from it? Don't blame God for what you want. It's already in your heart. Number four, the last thing he said is wisdom. Chapter one, verses five to eight, he says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you know what you should do? Ask God. I mean, we think, feel like we should just drop the mic on that one, right? You know what we usually do? Call up our friend. Or what we do is we get a self-help book. Or maybe we listen to a podcast. I'm not knocking any of these things. I, I read these books. I, re I listen to podcasts too. But we will do everything except do the simplest thing, which is just to ask, ask God, hey, what do you think we should do, God? Ah. And then he goes on and says this, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, without telling you you're an idiot, without saying, again? Do we have to talk about this again? Never does it. He says, I'm here, I'm your father, I want to talk about this again. Now, usually when we're asking God and we're praying to them, there's usually two things that we'll often talk to him about. And here it is. The first one is this. We usually ask for wisdom when we're making a decision, right? I, have, I don't know what job I should get. I should, should I take this job or should I take that job? Father, I don't, I don't know what car I should buy. Should I, should I buy the upgrade or shall I try and be as humble as possible and get the one that's like just the normal vanilla Camry, right? Okay, sorry for those vanilla Camrys, okay? So or, or which decision shall I make? We're making decisions about things that are, you know, it's just a decision. It's not really a trial and it's not a tribulation. But the other thing that we do is that when we are in trouble and when we are in difficulty, then we're getting on our knees and we're begging for help. Lord, rescue me from this situation. Rescue me, Lord. My enemies are against me. Rescue me, God. It's all falling apart. My friend has cancer. Rescue them, Lord. And we start to beg. But what James says here is really fascinating. He says, flip it and reverse it. Wow, okay? And he says, James says, don't ask for a way out. Ask what you should do in it. You see, the last prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples, he said, thank you, Father, that your spirit will come upon them 
And I pray that you will not take them out of this world, but you will protect them in this world. And then he says this, because I have overcome it. And then he drops the mic and then goes to the cross. Christ has overcome our circumstances. Instead of asking God for a way out, we should ask God, what do you want me to do? Don't ask for a rescue, ask for wisdom. Listen, I've been through this myself. I remember years ago, I was in business with someone who stole all the half of the business that I owned. He, he stole all the money that I had put into the business and I lost a ton of money. And there was times when I was in bed at night and I was angry and I was frustrated. And I'm like, God, I can't believe this. This is not right. Your word says that, that no one can steal from us. Why is someone stealing from me? This is not right. And I realized I was becoming angry because of the injustice for it. And I had all the right in the world to be able to have that type of anger. But the problem is I'm starting to lose sleep. I'm starting to have conversations and arguments with that person in my mind during the day. It's overcoming my life. It's a sign that a root of bitterness has taken over. And I said, God, what should I do in this situation? I finally asked, what do you want me to do? And I knew he gave me an answer. And he said, let it go, let it go. You need to let it go all again. I don't know the words. He starts singing Frozen to me. He didn't sing Frozen to me, okay, but, but he said, let it go. Forgive him his debt. And I'm like, dang it. Stop quoting scripture to me, God. But as soon as I decided to let it go, so did all the worry. So did all the fear. So did all the anger. You see, one of the things that I think we do as humans is we have such an intense, sharp insight to what justice is that we demand it so much that we would rather have what's right than have the relationship. I'd rather have the money back and be right and lose my friend. When the fact is, going to heaven, you will never take any money with you. You can't take any of this wealth. The only thing that you can take with you is whatever is in your heart. And whatever is in your heart is what connects you to the other people around you. You're gonna take friendships with you, you're going to take family with you, or you're going to take bitterness with you, and you're going to be judged for it. Who are you taking with you to the presence of God? Who are you taking with you into the kingdom of God? Who are you taking with you and hoping that you will meet when we finally end the, 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 the time of all times and we stand before God? Who is it you're going to be with, and how are you going to be connected to them? I need to be connected through joy. I have got to be connected through forgiveness. I can't afford to be anchored to the past or anchored to this earth and just hope that somehow I've done a good, enough good in my life. That's not the way it works. James is talking about the law of liberty. You are free to do good works. You are free to forgive. You are free to be free in your life and to free everyone else around you. Does that sound like good stuff to you? I think it sounds like good stuff to me. I am excited for the next four weeks, and I hope that, you, that you'll, want to, you'll want to come and be a part of this journey of studying this from week to week to week because we have got such great scripture to dig into, and I think this is gonna change our lives from the inside to the outside. So let's stand as we uh, finish our service today. And uh, the, 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 the homework for this week is simply to meditate on James chapter one. Read it and read it. And read it every day and ask God to show you something new every day. Just read it. Just do that. That's all it takes. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word that came through our brother James. James, who was an inspiration of tenacity 
who saw how much he rejected Christ, but then he laid his life down to stand up and say, this is good stuff. My brother is God. And Jesus, as we confess you as Christ, as we confess you as God in our lives, we ask that that's gonna give us power to change us from the inside to the outside, to have practical advice, to live the life that trusts the Father, not trusts the world, not affected or infected by our past or infected by the people that are around us or infected by what people say and politicians say and whatever all that junk is, we will be above it through the power of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, right now that you would bless everyone in this room. Fill them up from the bottom of our feet all the way up their legs into their torso, into their brain and overflow out of their ears and out of their mouth. Fill us with your spirit. May God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.